Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome on the SASPOT Halima Kazem. She is the Hoover Afghanistan Oral History Project Manager here at Stanford and I am just so delighted to be talking to her. She joined Stanford recently and so I will be asking her about um, her life uh, leading up to coming to Stanford and what she is doing with the Afghanistan Oral History Project and what she will be doing next. Halima, welcome to the SASPOD. Thank you, Lalita. I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I I'm happy to share about my experiences. So now I'm at Hoover, but before that, you know, most recently I finished my PhD in in feminist studies, um, and now I'm working on turning that uh, dissertation into a book because of its timely topic. I wrote a feminist history of politics, gender, gender, and empire in Afghanistan which is extremely timely and people are interested in this. Um, I researched and did archival work on Afghan queens and educated women um, and how they uh, access power in different ways. Um, so in through different regimes and foreign empires, you know, Afghanistan was the, was the only country that was entangled uh, with British, Soviet and American empires. So it has a really interesting history in that way. And each imperial formation enacted its own gendered projects, which created the conditions in which Afghanistan's leaders and women operated. So my dissertation has that um, uh, that long history, um, which has been really um, at the forefront uh, of what's going on right now. And we can talk more about kind of the, the current news coming out of Afghanistan in a little bit. Um, but before that, I, I spent a long, I had a long career, almost um, 18, 18 years as a journalist. And after 9-11, I returned to Afghanistan. I was born in Kabul, but I, I was away for a long time. And I returned and I spent um, 12, 13 years training Afghan journalists. I trained over 300 journalists. Um, I felt a responsibility to share those skills um, and I did that for for many, many years before coming back here and teaching and being in academia and finishing my PhD. And that all has brought me here to Hoover. Wow, that's a very, uh, there's so much there. This is a very compact history of your life. Um, so when did you finish your PhD? I'm just curious. I mean, for all of us, we do our research and then, you know, there's a new archive or a new event or a new something that kind of, you know, then we have to write more or we have to say, okay, that'll be the next book. But for you, like the Taliban happened and that was a little sudden, right? So what what's the timeline there? And what was that like for you? So I finished just two, three months ago, finished writing the dissertation and finishing. And the last in the conclusion 
uh, goes up to uh, pretty much uh, end of 2021 and it includes the fall. So I have oral histories, which were a big part of my methodology and my research up until um, you know the last month before I uh, submitted and finished. It, it um, so much changed in the in the five years that I was writing and working and researching, yeah. and every couple months things were changing. In 2020 with COVID, in 2021 with all of the changes with the peace deal, the proposed being a peace deal under the Trump administration and with Biden every turn was almost a new new section it had to be but I had to cut it off at some point yeah was that hard to say okay I'm done this is never gonna finish I'm just I need to submit this and I need to be done was was that a do you remember how how you came to that decision because that must have been strange yes um in my in my work I do a periodization which is which is fairly um unique to the work of women's movements not in the form that um, the political histories have placed it in, I have certain parameters for what I considered a women's movement um, and who it was led by. And I saw after August 15, 2021, the day that the Afghan Republic fell and the Taliban took over as an end of a certain period and a start of another. So I thought it was important to make sure I cover that new period to a degree, but, but then after some point, after about five months into the, the new, uh, the takeover of the Taliban, uh, I felt like I had started that point in the research and could leave it there. Right, okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I also want to ask you about training journalists, because I imagine being a journalist, there, there are steps to it. This is what you need to know to be a journalist, and this is what you need to do. But then you also need a context of, a media in which you can be a journalist. And what was that like and how did that change What in these 12, 13 years that you were training people in Afghanistan? It was an exciting time. Um, those early years of 2003, 2004, five, most of us who worked and lived in Afghanistan call that that Renaissance period of mm. Afghanistan. This mo these moments of possibility and imaginations were you know open and thinking about all the possibilities and that was the case for media as well and media was um you know journalists were um components of that process that democracy building whatever critique we have of it now but being there they were a part of the process of this society opening up that they could report and it had its struggles and ups and downs there were oftentimes I, I'm teaching, um, you know, I would be teaching about media freedom, about women's, uh, women writing about uh, gender-based violence or human rights. And then we'd get a um, order from the Ministry of Communications saying these certain topics can't be covered. Mm -hmm. Or then you'd hear from colleagues from different provinces say, um, you know, they're censoring our work. And so we were trying to open up uh, this kind of type of communication in, in journalism there, but under this context that was constantly changing and never very sta never stable. You are now the oral history project manager at the Hoover Institution. Um, can you tell us more about what's what that entails in terms of your job, also what the oral history project is and and what's it trying to achieve? 
Yeah, definitely. I was, I, I had to pinch myself when I got offered this position because after August 15th, I thought I can't move on and just move on to a different job because Afghanistan is not accessible to me anymore. I can't travel as easily. Uh, and I thought, and when I was offered this position and I saw it, I thought, wow, what a great way to process everything that, um, that has happened and try to understand it and understand it in a, in a very Avron way, Avron centered way. And I thought that that was important. Um, so it we're the oral history project, the heart, and that stands for Hoover Afghanistan relief and research team. Okay. Um, that was a project that was started right after, um, right in August, 2021 by Hoover's senior fellow, HR McMaster, who spent a lot of time and served in Afghanistan. And um, they started the relief project where they were trying to help Afghans evacuate, evacuating Afghans uh, from, from, the, uh, from Afghanistan. And I think you probably remember the scenes and news about people rushing the airports, trying to get out. Of people course. who had done public facing work or held government positions or were in, um, were in danger because of the things that they had done during the time of the Republic. And now with the Taliban uh, coming in, they would they were afraid they were going to be hunted down and killed. Um, and so Hoover started the relief work as many other organizations did and helped hundreds of people um, uh, with documentation to be able to leave with all sorts of services um, to be able to get themselves out. And that was huge. And after that initial relief period, um, General McMaster, H.R. McMaster, being a historian himself um, and spending time in Afghanistan, decided oral histories uh, was going to be very important to capture the moment, to capture the period. Um, and so he initiated this conversation and I was asked to join the team uh, to lead the oral history project. And so what is the project? What is it that you that you're actually whose voices are are you recording if that is indeed what you're doing? Yes, we're recording interviews, long oral histories with um, Avrons, with Americans, with other others who worked and lived in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2021, with a special emphasis on last year, 2021, and the last few months leading up to the Taliban takeover and the fall of the Afghan Republic um, in August. So I'm interviewing a wide range of people and collecting experiences, memories, eyewitness accounts. These are what make oral histories unique. Um, and that's why I work with oral histories. Um, we are centering individuals and individual histories in the larger context of what happened during the last two decades in Afghanistan. We're inserting people, human faces, words, uh, voices um, in these larger histories that are often told and that are often not told in the voices of those people. And these are all people that are now in the United States? Or are you traveling or doing this on Zoom? All of that, traveling in different different countries in the United States, on Zoom, um, a wide range of ways of getting these interviews. And are they, um, what language are they in? And then are they transcribed? What's, sorry to be digging down into the dirt, but I'm very curious. Yeah, great questions. And so I allow, I ask people 
to speak in the language they're most comfortable in. Um, and so far, a majority are in uh, Farsi, Dari, uh, dialect of uh, Farsi in Afghanistan, um, and uh, English. Uh, obviously, non-Afghans are speaking in English, and then um, we can accommodate Pashto or any of the other uh, Afghan languages when necessary. Okay, okay, great. Thank you for uh, kind of drawing the picture for me. And um, it's described as a project, so that sounds like it has an end date, and it probably needs to have an end date because the voices will, I mean, like a PhD, it can go on forever. Um, so then now we have an archive at Hoover, and what does it look like? I mean, what's the actual artifact in terms of, are they recordings, are they books, are they whatever? And then and what's the vision? What will happen to this? So this process takes time, much more time than people think of, oh, you record an interview and it just, it's a file that's there. Right. Um, we have such a wonderful team working um, on this. Um, I'm envisioning a completion date sometime in 2024. We're not in a rush. These are okay. not media interviews. Um, we wanna do this right. Um, and we wanna respect um, people when they're talking to us. Um, it's a very emotional process and time for Avons. And many of them haven't talked about leaving Afghanistan, the, the journeys that they've had and the resettlement struggles until they sit down with me. Yeah. It's um, things happen so quickly in 2021 that they are starting to process what's happened and they're starting to process their pain. And I can see that processing as they're talking to me. Um, and as an Afghan American, also the children, uh, you know, a child of refugee, you know, we were political refugees. Um, and I came to the United States in the early 80s. You see the repeated patterns of pain and trauma caused by war and conflict. So as an Afghan American, I was, you know, I was born in Kabul and lived and worked in Afghanistan for much of the last 20 years. It's difficult to hear these stories. And I relive the moments with them. Yeah. I go so deep into the interviews. Um, the dangerous taxi ride to Kabul airport during the days of the after the fall of the Republic, the desperate calls they made to foreign friends and former colleagues trying to get help with visas. Sometimes the interviews go on for three or four hours, which is a lot longer than inter oral history interviews should go. Right. The people want to talk. We are all exhausted at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And then... Um... Do you imagine that people will um, that people will listen to all of these interviews, or will you take? Will, will there be kind of a a document that that kind of like are these interviews artifacts in their own right, or are they going to be used as evidence to build a narrative of what happened? I guess is my question. And could I, if I wanted to listen to that four hour interview at some point, would I be able to do that? So the idea is that um, the oral histories will be made available um, to the public and to researchers um, in different ways. We are still working out all the different ways, the sensitivities, of course. Um, you know, um, the legal uh, ramifications. Um, we're working through all those, but the end goal is that these interviews will be available to the public. Yeah, wow. Um, it's uh, it's incredible work and I'm uh, I'm sure it's very emotional for, for you as the as the uh, the manager as well as for the entire team and of course the people you're interviewing, um, 
Okay, I want to just go off a little bit and I want to talk about Hoover. Um, and I hope you'll bear with me while I kind of formulate my thoughts on this. But um, so on the Stanford campus, the way I perceive it, the Hoover Institution um, has associations of political bias. There's clearly a connection with politics in, in the way that uh, some of the senior staff are uh, former politicians or former army people or maybe currently. Um, I don't quite know how it works. I think I've even heard Hoover described as a, a right-wing think tank. I don't know if that's a, 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 a official title or just a description by somebody else. Your work is clearly not in that vein. And so I just wonder, well, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I wonder how you, being the person that you are and the work that you do, how do you negotiate both reality of working at Hoover, but also the perception of what it is like to work mm -hmm. at Hoover? Mm -hmm. So I'm based in the Hoover Library and Archives, um, which is has this wonderful reputation of servicing different academic departments in the university here at Stanford and so many researchers all over the world. And so Hart, the, um, the oral history part is in the library and archives, which, um, which you know, already kind of stands on its own. Um, and I think that that as a journalist, if I still, I still consider myself at heart a journalist, um, an academic, I'm, I'm very proud of that the library has wonderful collections such as the Bath Party archives, which have been used in some uh, amazing books and research. Um, and as I've been here, I've seen the collections and the archives. And, you know, here in the library and archives, we document revolutions, wars, conflicts, and this project fits here. Um, and before, uh, you know, before I came here, I did my research as, you know, as you probably expect that I, I would. And I asked people um, about the team and, specifically because this was initiative uh, uh, started by H.R. McMaster. Um, and I asked Afghans, you know, mm. what people thought about H.R. And I heard such really great, wonderful things about H.R. and the work that he did in Afghanistan. And many Afghans I talked to him said wonderful things about him and his work and his time and his honesty, um, you know, being a you know kind of a feminist historian i'm critical of anything that relates to obviously militarism imperialism you know um and so i went in looking at that and uh, the stories that i heard about hr mcmaster and plus that he's a historian he's he's trained as a historian um and then when i met him and i met the team uh i was uh i felt good about it and also the hoover library and archives and the Hoover uh, individuals I've met have been so supportive, have been so um, respectful of my subject matter knowledge um, in, in helping, you know, allowing me to guide the key aspects of this project, well, you know, obviously, which are who you interview, your methodology and all of that. I, I have, I'm um, really uh, amazed by how much uh, interest there is to keep this independent and and true to the mission. Okay, that's that's wonderful to hear. And do, do you get tired? I mean, do do a lot of people ask you that question that I just asked you? 
<laughs> I think some serious head nodding do. going on here for the audience. <laughs> I, I, I'm now realizing that they do, people do, and I'm surprised. And I, um, you know, I, as a journalist, I don't engage in that kind of, you know, in kinds of policy and, and those kinds of opinion related um, material. Um, and so being based in library and archives feels, uh, feels good to me and feels like home. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, I get that. We are um, we are at the end of uh, 2022, although the podcast will drop early in 2023. I can't believe that's where we're heading, 2023. It feels um, too soon for it to be 2023. Uh, and right now there's a new, well, for me as a, as a listener um, to kind of global news, um, there seems to be a recent spate of of more terrible news than usual coming out of uh, coming out of Afghanistan. Um, but of course, it has been um, really um, disturbing and painful uh, to hear. Of course, education for women and and other human rights horrors. And what's that like for you? And is there a way forward? I think there are two questions there. I mean, what's it like for you is one. And then the other question kind of has two parts in terms of, is there, I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, I get that, but is, the, is there, it's so hard to see a way out of this. It's it's so easy for me to get stuck in, how do we get here? How is this even happening to see any way forward? But then I guess the second part of that question is, that exactly that that emotional piece like it's the deja vu of this is so painful and I have no um I have no personal investment beyond being a human being who who works on and loves South Asia but that's it but for you yeah say more sorry there was a lot of questions there no no it makes makes perfect sense I think the most difficult moments for me is um, in the mornings when I wake up and it's um, morning for us here and nighttime in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and um, people have gone hungry all day, people I've known, um, families who through other families have found my number and opening, I take a moment and I, I have this like panic sec- moment when I click my WhatsApp uh, button on my phone because I'm worried about all those little red, you know, indications that there are new messages coming from people from Afghanistan, and my heart's, you know, just breaks. And you know, I have a moment where I really uh, panic because there's only so much I can do, um, and people are hungry. They're asking for money. Journalists I trained are in hiding um, still. There aren't jobs, their salaries have been cut. If they have, if they were lucky to be able to keep jobs, their salaries have been cut. I have a, a, a former professor of Kabul University who was a journalism professor, just messaged. They had six adults in the family all out of work and, and they're going hungry. Um, those are the, the difficult, that's the human cost of all of this. Um, that's the hardest thing to hear. Um, even, uh, you know, and then you hear about the women organizing in Western Afghanistan and Herat to try to keep girls' schools open. They're asking me for help in curriculum, which I can do, but 
funding? How do you get funding? The ethics of that? How do you help people? That's my, that's how I, I think day by day and person by person. And that's just really exhausting and hard. And on top of that, you hear the political news, like the Taliban now considering that it's um, a permanent ban of uh, girls' education after the sixth grade. That's not, that was not part of the peace deal. That was not part of the negotiations. Um, and so they feel empowered um, you know, to be able to make those decisions. We saw one of the first stonings of a woman um, just uh, two days ago in Western Herat, I mean, Western Afghanistan. Um, it's a recurrence of the past regime. It makes you feel uh, very uh, um, sad that uh, we're back to that. I do like to see that the women are not in the same place anymore. I'd like to believe that over 20 years, we've built a new front line of defenders, but they may defend in their own way. They may defend um, you know, in ways that we don't see. Resistance isn't always visible. So I refrain from pitying them or, or, or thinking that they're helpless. I know better than that. Yeah. Um, so it's a mix of emotions. So I struggle with the, um, the focus um, in the news and also just when I think about Afghanistan and when I speak to people on um, the block on education for girls, because on the one hand, is so tangible and of course it is genuinely horrific and like there's there's no spin on it it's terrible but it's also how they're justified going in to begin with I mean I remember and I talked about this on the podcast before when I spoke to um, Bob Cruz and Mishkan Masumi um, that that was the justification right to rescue women so they could go to school so they could read books and and so it worries me when people spend so much time talking about that. Then I just don't quite. It's it 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 feels colonial. Feels salvationist. It feels uncomfortable in so many ways. Can you can you help me think that through a little bit? So in the fur in two thousand and one, when the U.S. went in, part of the justification was the saving saving women. It was set up as an acceptable um acceptable uh reason to go but that wasn't you know the full reason it was al-qaeda it was militarism but again the u.s the u.s framed it in a way because it was so much more acceptable for a u.s audience um yes. framing women's rights in that way but it, it wasn't the primary purpose mm -hmm. they did however and I talk a lot about this and I write a lot about this in my dissertation is that they, um, the U.S. and the world um, uh, created the largest gender project, international aid project environment that has ever been seen in history. Mm. Um, the lessons learned from it are a whole different story. Right. Um, but um but that's an interesting thing to say that it was the largest gender project in history yeah. um, and looking at how that was implemented. Um, yeah. And, and, and knowing, not having enough reassurances that that would not be repeated, that the Taliban would not repeat the same, um, you know, policies, not having those assurances 
but yet still negotiating with them is is troubling. And and I'm hoping that the the oral histories will help explain in a very in very nuanced ways um, some of these decisions and and help us understand why things did turn out the way they did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for um, helping me think through that. Um, you mentioned the project, so a beautiful full circle to the to the oral history project. When that is done, and I really loved how earlier in the podcast you described that as really coming home for you. Um, so when it's time for you to leave that home, where will you make your next home? What is what is your um, what are your real plans, or what is a, a dream of what you will do, be doing next? Um, I think that the, the, the oral history archive is important to me because it was something that I didn't have here in the United States when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have an archive of Avalon voices. The experiences of my parents' generations when they came here were not recorded. And so we, we, I can't go back and listen to those. And so that's why it was so important for me to do this work. Yeah. Um, and I'm also a um, chancellor's fellow at UC Santa Cruz. And so I'm building a similar kind of thing, um, you know, there to expand all of this, to get more Avon voices for people in the future to be able to hear. Um, what's next for me? Honestly, August 15th, uh, the fall of the Avon Republic um, was hard, was hard for me. And in some ways, in some ways, it made me stop counting too much about what's, what will be in the future because it, that was so unexpected right. that we didn't realize. And so I'm putting myself into this work right now and thinking maybe in the future, um, I'll go back to teaching. Um, I will always continue my research. I researched Afghanistan when it wasn't popular, um, you know, when it wasn't in primetime news and um, uh, it will always be your main focus for me. Um. I'm sure people would love to read your book, um, other things you have written, maybe uh, some of the stuff you produced when you were um, a full-time journalist. Um, how can people read your your work and where can they follow you if if you are follow, followable online, I mean, of course? Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, so at Halima Kazem. Um, and my... I haven't uh, I haven't had the chance in the last few years to really build out um, um, a place from where all my work is. But usually when people Google me, they'll find my public work. Um, uh, And so I did a lot of work on human rights um, and uh, women's rights in Afghanistan and a lot of my media work. But um, on Twitter, I think is best. Okay, great. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Uh, And then one final question, Halima, if you don't mind. Um, I imagine uh, some of our audience members are listening and and they want to help. What can people quote unquote do? Where can they go? What what can people what can people do if anything? Because it's not that easy to get supplies and information into Afghanistan the way I understand it. So, um, any suggestions? Absolutely, there are within the networks that I'm involved in. There are many ways people can help and people can reach out to me, um, hcosm at stanford.edu, and tell me the ways in which they want to help. And I will find places where they can uh, make the kind of impact they want to, whether it's very direct, 
And um, some people really want to be in touch with Afghans on the ground there, which is still very possible with social media and all sorts of um, uh, ways of communicating, or if they want to do it from a distance and, and just give to a larger fund, there are very specific ways that I can recommend where people can uh, give very directly to Avon projects, especially ones supporting teachers' networks. I'm in touch with uh, many teachers' networks. Um, we have to be careful about them, so I won't give too much information here, sure. but people can reach out to me. That's incredible. Thank you so much for making making that possible, making that available. Um, thank you so much for sharing some of your life and your work story here with me today on the Sasspot. I'm very grateful and I've learned so much. Thank you, Elita. It's my honor to be here. I also want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the Sasspot and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.